Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. On the surface, it can feel like we've made a lot of technological, economic, and cultural progress during the past 30 years. But if you look closer, you start to notice that in a lot of ways, we've been running on repeat for several decades now. My guest today argues that this is what typically happens to rich and powerful societies. A period of growth and dynamism, such as we experienced after World War II, is followed by a period of stagnation and malaise. His name is Ross Douthit, and his latest book is The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. We begin a conversation discussing Ross's idea of decadence and how it's particularly marked by the quality of boredom. We then explore how decadence manifests itself in different areas of our society. Ross and I discuss how even though the realms of economy and technology might seem vibrant, or at least they did before the pandemic struck, Americans are actually starting fewer businesses, moving less for work, and making fewer life-altering innovations than in times past. We then discuss the fact that clothing styles haven't changed all that much from the 1990s, the repercussions of couples having fewer children, and the calcification of our political institutions. We enter conversation with how each of us as individuals can fight back against decadence. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash decadence. Ross joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Ross Douthit, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So you got a new book out, The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. So let's start off with this definitions. What do you mean by decadence? Because I think most people associate that with chocolate or sex. Right. And, you know, there's some chocolate and sex in the book. But mostly I'm arguing that we should understand decadence to mean stagnation, drift, repetition, and boredom at a really high level of wealth and civilizational development. So basically, once a society hits a certain point of, you know, for want of a better word, success, and its growth rates slow down, it stops thinking about the future, its political arguments go in circles, its culture starts to repeat itself. And I think boredom is kind of the key thing. Like, so if you think about, about sex, the decadent the decadence of uh, the real, real dec- decadence with sex is like the most boring orgy in the world, basically. <laughs> oh, so before we get to your case that our current culture is a decadent one, let's take a look at history. Are there any other examples from previous societies or civilizations where you saw that they arrived at decadence the way you define it? Yeah, I mean, I think decadence is a pretty normal historical phenomenon. And just about every society that has any kind of success goes through decadent phases or enters decadent periods, right? So the, you know, the obvious example is if you start the clock on the Roman Empire around the time that, you know, the famous orgies are happening, right, in Nero's Rome, and then you run forward to the actual fall of Rome or the fall of the Western Roman Empire, that's about 400 years. And there are, you know, moments of vigor and creativity in that span. But basically, you could say that the Roman Empire was in various ways decadent for centuries before it fell apart. Or to pick examples from the second millennium, you know, the Ottoman Empire for about 150 years in the time when it got called the sick man of Europe was pretty obviously decadent. The Chinese Empire in the 100 years before, you know, as European powers gradually picked away at it. So those are sort of big, famous examples. But really, any rich society is going to have decadent phases and periods when it sort of gets stuck and can't figure out how to advance. So it's a very normal thing for for successful societies to enter into. And, and why is that? Is it because once you reach a level of success, you're just starting to play, you're playing not to lose, you're just trying to keep what you got, so you're not taking in risk to make advances? 
Yeah, it's some of that. Some of it is that, you know, there are sort of limits to human creativity in a particular cultural context. And so it makes sense that after you've, you know, I mean, to take the case of the United States, after you've, you know, invented the great American novel and invented the movie industry and then revolutionized the movie industry a few more times, you might start to run out of ideas and just start making the same Star Wars movies over and over again, right? And in the same way in politics, right? So if you build up a really successful constitutional order or a really successful system of government, over time, the system sort of gets big and heavy and locked in and it's too sort of too big to fail in the language of the last financial crisis. It gets harder and harder to reform it. So even if you want to change and adapt the system to new realities, it gets harder and harder to do that. And I think, you know, that's what you see in Washington, D.C. right now. But I think your original point is right, too, that, you know, once once a society is really successful, it, you know, it runs out of enemies to challenge it. It runs out of, you know, fears to motivate it. And it gets older. Right. And this is a big thing that's happened in the Western world. We've we've had we have fewer kids. Society's gotten older and being rich and old is a good recipe for decadence. So I've seen you start to flesh out these ideas uh, in your articles in the New York Times for about a year or so. But when did you start noticing that, you know, America and Western society has probably entered into a decadent phase? So in a certain way, I've been working on this book for like six or seven years, I guess. And I got sort of sidetracked by other projects and personal stuff. But so I really started working on it after the 2012 election, which is a long time ago now. And part of the motivation was that we had just lived through this massive financial crisis where in the aftermath, everyone in my profession was saying, well, you know, this changes everything, you know, it's, it's going to, you know, it's going to going to radically transform our politics in all these kind of ways. And instead, we ended up in 2012 with, you know, Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney in what was in certain ways, the most boring and dispiriting imaginable presidential election. And this, you know, I had come of age as a journalist and writer after 9-11. So I had gone through this cycle once before where, you know, some big event happens and people say, well, you know, this is the moment when our decadence ends and vigor is restored and new things happen. And then politics fell quickly back into the same, the same patterns as before. So having gone through that twice, I felt like there was sort of a lesson there, which is that even big events, even financial crises and massive terrorist attacks don't necessarily change the trajectory of a wealthy, stable, somewhat stagnant society that much. Now, obviously, when I you know, was planning to publish the book, I wasn't anticipating that we would get yet another immense world-altering disaster happening while I was actually out promoting the book. So it remains to be seen whether the pandemic will have effects that 9-11 and the financial crisis didn't have. It's certainly possible that it could be a bigger jolt and an actual redirection. But so far, I think Western civilization has come through the 30 years since the Cold War ended without having its stagnation altered that much, even by dramatic seeming events. Well, let's dig into this, these, the different types of stagnation that you highlight in your book. And the first one is economic stagnation. And I've seen this argument put out by Tyler Cowen, The Economist. You know, it, it may look like we're making a lot of progress economically, uh, technological innovation, but really not. I mean, so what is the evidence that economists point to that say, really, the world has been 
economically stagnant for maybe 40, 50 years. So first, there's just a sort of deceleration in growth, right? So if you go back to the late 1960s, early 70s, which is when I sort of start my story, you have a period in the post-war era of really rapid, dramatic economic growth. And then you have the stagflation of the 1970s, and you have sort of temporary recoveries of growth under Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. But each time when the next recession comes along, it sort of it wipes out a lot of those gains. So basically, over the last couple of generations, we've settled into a normal where 4 or 5% growth is incredibly rare, and 1.5 to 2% growth is the best that we're going to get seemingly. And at the same over the same period, you've also had fiscal policy change dramatically. So, you know, Western governments, and especially the United States now run immense peacetime deficits in a way that we didn't have to 50 or 60 or 70 years ago. So basically, you have an economy where we are spending more public money in order to sort of goose extremely low growth rates as opposed to an earlier era when you you know when the government didn't have to do that kind of deficit spending work and you got 4 or 5% growth without it so it's important to stress this is not the end of growth it doesn't mean that progress has ceased entirely people still get richer societies are still getting richer but they're just doing so at a very slow pace and at a pace where we are doing this sort of weird thing where we take our own surplus and pay ourselves extra money to feel to feel like we're growing more than we actually are. And but you know, some people, you know, this has kind of come up in the past 10 years, some people are noticing like they're not they're not experiencing that growth economically. You know, the people talk about like my dad did better than me financially working a factory job, not going to college and then here I am laden with thousands of dollars of student debt working not a great job. Right. Now this and this is something that economists as they do are constantly arguing about, right? Like like how much better off is, you know, the average American worker today versus 40 or 50 years ago. And there are sort of two competing theories. One competing one theory says, look, growth has slowed down, but there has been growth. Goods and services have gotten a lot cheaper, you know, your TVs and and iPhones are, you know, amazing in a way that your dad working the factory job couldn't have imagined. The counter argument is that a few really big ticket things have not necessarily gotten cheaper. It's not clear that real estate has gotten cheaper. You know, college ed- a college education has become more and more important, and that hasn't gotten cheaper. And healthcare hasn't gotten cheaper. You've had a lot of healthcare cost inflation. So there's sort of this, these, you know, it, it basically depends on how you weight different things. If you say the most important thing is, you know, sort of the cost of consumer goods and what's available to you there, then people are definitely better off. But if you say the most important thing is, you know, a man's ability to support his family on a single income and live in a middle class house, then things are a lot more ambiguous and it's less clear that people are better off. And to that, that latter point, I just saw a meme going around. Uh, it was a picture of like an Al Bundy's house. He had this nice two-story house. And we we're like, a guy in 1987 who worked as a shoe salesman was able to live in a nice house like this. Again, it was television, but I think it, it kind of, it's, no, trying, to, it's it was, trying to make I mean, that point. You know, my, my um, grandparents lived in Santa Monica, California. So my dad grew up there in the fifties and they had a one story sort of mission style California house, you know, probably three bedrooms, nice backyard with an orange tree. And, you know, my grandfather was a, you know, God rest him, a not very successful salesman. 
right? He was, he wasn't Al Bundy, but he wasn't like, he wasn't not Al Bundy, right? And my grandmother didn't work. And they were able to afford that house in basically an earthly paradise, right? And flash forward 70 years, their house has been torn down after they passed away. The houses there are now two stories. They're too big for their lots. They all cost $2 million. And that's a change, right? And, you know, and you can still get like the the salesman might still be able to get a version of that house, maybe more cheaply made out in an exurb somewhere in a hotter part of California that fewer people want to live in. But still, the sh- yeah, the shift the shift from my grandfather's era to today, in that sense, is is real. Now, it is also true that there are fewer men who are shoe salesmen today, and more men who are white collar workers. Right, so there is a smaller population of would be Al Bundys, but yeah, but there's there's definitely been a shift. I mean, it's the, the, it's the Simpsons phenomenon too, right? Like, you know, the 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 Simpsons home is sort of this paradigm of middle class life, and Homer Simpson is nobody's idea of you know an A student or uber meritocrat, and it's that Springfield. Maybe it still existed in the eighties. It doesn't exist today. Well, this also with this point of stagnation, you make the point that technology has stagnated, which is interesting because most people think, well, no, in the past 20 years, things have sped up. We got the internet, we got smartphones, we've got Slack, TikTok, whatever. So what's the the case that we ha- we're actually not innovating as much as we once did? Well, it's similar to the to the argument about growth, right? That there is clear innovation in a few, you know, really significant areas, right? Digital technology and communications technology have changed immensely over the last 30 or 40 years. Silicon Valley barely existed a couple generations ago. Now it's the center of the global economy. Every time you, you know, take out your iPhone, you're experiencing an amazing technological revolution. But that revolution takes, you know, is most important for communication, entertainment, leisure. You know, it's an, it's an economy of convenience. And you haven't had the same kind of changes in other areas of the economy relative to what people expected. You know, if you go back to 1950s science fiction, you know, people are imagining that what has what happened, what did happen with the computer, right? That huge computers get shrunk down and stuck in your pocket would happen with like atomic energy. So everyone would drive around a, you know, a clean, safe, atomic powered automobile in the year 2020 and things like that. And that hasn't happened. You know, we do have, you know, we have hybrids. We're finally getting electric cars, but it's taken a very long time. Energy costs haven't been revolutionized the way people expected. Transportation hasn't been revolutionized. Things like the self-driving car kept get pushed further and further out. And, you know, the same goes with health and life expectancy, right? You've made some sort of slow grinding progress against cancer in the last 30 years but the expectations of the era when you know penicillin was being invented was that you were just going to have sort of a cascade of cures that you know first we cured polio and then we'll cure cancer and then we'll cure alzheimers and dementia and that hasn't happened either so it's been the growth we've had has just been very monodimensional very very tech heavy and it's been hard for tech to transform other sectors you, you know like when tech money leaves tech and tries to transform, you know, uh, the, how we give blood, how we, you know, how we take blood in pharmacies, right? You get Theranos, you get these companies that spend a ton of money and end up being, being frauds, or you get WeWork, you know, we're revolutionizing workspace. And then it turns out the company isn't worth nearly what anyone expected. So there's just been a challenge of taking the one area where we've had 
major progress and transforming the rest of society. And also you make the point too, and I've, I've seen this case made as well, is that the, the innovations we've had in the past 40 years, like they're not, I mean, they're game changers, but they're not. Like I'd rather have indoor plumbing and electricity and I could do without my smartphone. Like I could get by and life would be, or I'd, like, I'd rather have antibiotics than a smartphone. So like the stuff we've, the innovations we made, they're like, you, they're, you they're, definitely they're not big. I mean, they're not, it's like, it doesn't move the needle too much when, in the grand scheme of things. Right. I mean, there's a sense in which, and this is, you know, Cowan's point, Tyler Cowan, who you mentioned earlier, that there was a range of inventions that in hindsight look like kind of low hanging fruit where, you know, once you could, once you figured out a few things about electricity or biology, you know, there were a bunch of really big transformative things that you could do really quickly, basically in a 100 to 150 year period. And now we're in a period where, you know, there's still a lot of impressive cutting edge research going on. And at some point it may cash out in revolutions. Um, but for now, the research is more impressive than the results, I guess, is one way to look at it. Right. You had this quote from a, a guy named Mark Stein talking about imagining a, a man in the late 19th century and going to the 1950s and coming to our age. This reminds have you been to the wheel, the carousel of progress at Disney World? Yes, a, lo- a long time ago, but yeah. Yeah, that reminded me of that because, okay, so for those who don't know, the Carousel of Progress is this little ride you get in with animatronics. And there's like this dad who starts out in the 1900s and he takes you through the, the advancements in technology. And you start out in the 1900s, you get the 1920s, and there's like electricity and indoor plumbing. Then you get the 1940s, more advances. And then you get the 21st century, which was made in 1993. So all the characters are like wearing neon windsuits and <laughs> and it's still like that. And I remember you get to the 21st century and you're just completely underwhelmed. It's like you can talk to the oven, which we, I guess we have with like Alexa infused ovens, but that's about it. And I was like, that's, that's, that's not, I'm not, I'm not looking forward to the 21st century if that's what it is. I'm looking, I'm looking online. At, right. So they have a kid wearing a, a sort of Oculus Rift style headset. Right. Yeah. Grandma has two. In the twenty, but but the neon, the clothes too are. Uh, this is one of the smaller points I make in the book, and I'm stealing it from a journalist named Kurt Anderson. But you know, he makes the point that if you watch movies from or just look at pictures from any decade in the 21st century, you in, in the 20th century, excuse me, you get this really clear distinction, decade to decade, in fashions and styles and what people are wearing. You know, nobody mistakes the 1930s for the Mad Men era. No one mistakes the Mad Men era definitely for the 1970s. And then somewhere around the 1990s, things stop changing that much. And so if you turn on Friends and Frasier now, you know, the hairstyles are a little different. Some of the clothes are a little baggier. But there isn't, you know, there hasn't been that kind of fashion turnover either. So, you know, the the sort of Jetsons futuristic wardrobes, the, you know, the jumpsuits of Star Trek and so on, None of that has actually happened, which might, you know, might be a good thing. I don't want to wear the Star Trek jumpsuit, but it does suggest too that there's been this that that changes in fashion reflect changes in technology, and we haven't had those, either of those changes. Yeah, I've noticed that too. Like I look at high school kids, and they're wearing the same thing that I wore in high school. Totally, you know, twenty years ago, t-shirt, jeans, pair of Converse. That's it. Like that's what I, that was my uniform, and I see kids still wearing that. Yeah, and if you walk around a college campus, you know all the guys have the if they're pretentious, they have the same you know black pea coat that I owned when I was you know young and pretending to be an adult. And it's not you know it's not ugly, but 
it's nothing like the, the change from the 50s to the 70s, say. And then, yeah, this is this idea of you know, repetition in culture as well. I mean, something you see too with, with style and then also other parts of culture is that we keep going back into the past for our inspiration. So like with style, you know, you see these decades where you say, oh, we're 90s are back now. I guess, so I think windsuits in some cases are back. That whole Seinfeld norm court thing kind of had a thing. But like we're, there's- the, Ra- the Rachel haircut came the, back. The I Rachel think. haircut came back. I'm sure like Luke Perry's sideburns are going to come back eventually. But you also see this like with films and art and music. Nothing, I mean, if you listen to a song today that was made, you know, today compared to 20 years ago, not that much of a difference. Yeah, I mean, I think the last big musical innovation was the rise of rap and hip hop, which still gets cast by some, you know, some people as like this, you know, it's the new thing that the youth are into. (laughs) But but rap and hip hop have been around, I mean, what are we now, 2020, so for 35, 40 years. And there is, you know, I, I think you can make the argument that basically we're all still living inside baby boomer pop culture. And that almost everything that matters in our pop culture was sort of invented somewhere between 1930 and 1970 or 1975 with the with the exception of the Harry Potter stories right that's that's the one sort of millennial era <laughs> sort of pop culture juggernaut but star wars star trek the entire comic book universe if you go into a mall at christmas time except for Mariah Carey, you know, 80% of the Christmas carols will be from that, you know, period from World War II through the 1970s. And, you know, part of that just reflects the fact that that was a really dynamic and creative era in American history. And it's not, you know, it's not entirely a bad thing to have that kind of stuff to rework and play with. And I, you know, I enjoy the Marvel movies in their way. But it is, I think, a sign of a certain kind of stuckness and repetition that did not characterize America in 1960, 1965 or so. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Yeah, with movies, yeah, you talk about we're reboot, like Star Wars is still going on, even though it was, you know, the first one came out in the late 70s. The Marvel movies, that's pretty much it. And then even when they come out the new movie, it's typically a reboot of a franchise that existed for 30 years. Yeah, and this is, and this is actually, this has happened especially in the last 20 years. So if you go back and look at the budget, the uh, box office top 10 from, you know, the, the mid-1990s, you would have one or two sequels, but it was very normal to have original movies, <laughs> stories that nobody had ever seen before, right? That were, you know, no stories completely original. Everybody's reworking and remaking things. You know, Shakespeare didn't come up with all his own stories. But there's a difference between, you know, Mel Gibson coming up with Braveheart out of the true history of William Wallace, but, you know, making a, a movie that nobody was making in the early 1990s versus the 17th film in the Marvel Extended Universe. Right. And again, I think this goes back to this idea of decadence being like you're not, you're playing not to lose. So like the movie studios know that a Marvel movie will do really well. So that's what they're going to put out. And they're not going to take a risk on, on an eternal sunshine and a spotless mind. Right. And when they do take risks, people get, you know, punished or find that they don't have the capacities that you need so this is this is my theory of Star Wars, right? That 
the original Star Wars movies are great, interesting, creative pastiches of old Hollywood, you know, adventure movies and Akira Kurosawa and so on. And then Lucas wanted in the prequels to do something sort of deeper and more sweeping and more tragic and in- really interesting, right? So he had high ambitions. He just didn't have the capabilities and the capacities to actually do that. And so the results were kind of laughable. And so then thereafter, once the movies are turned over to Disney, you get the retreat to safety, the playing not to lose, where it's like, well, you know, we tried doing a movie, doing movies about galactic politics with like Senate speeches and so on. And nobody wants to do that again. So we're just going to literally make the original trilogy over again with the same beats and, you know, the genders of some characters switched. And that's how you get the J.J. Abrams Star Wars movies. All right, so we've talked about stagnation with the economy, with culture, but another area where you you highlight where decadence can take root and stagnate is in our institutions. So I'm talking about political institutions, you can even see corp- corporate institutions. What are some examples of sort of stagnation there? Well, so the easy one is just is just politics and government, right? Then, and, and this is the part of decadence that I think everybody accepts as a reality. I get very little argument about this that you know, basically over the last 40 or 50 years, you've had the combination of a 200-year-old constitutional structure, a 100-year-old welfare state, and partisan polarization make our political institutions less trustworthy, less trusted, and complete, you know, over time, completely dysfunctional. So, you know, we've reached a point where you know, a president can expect to maybe pass one piece of legislation, even if his party controls controls the House and Senate when he takes office. You have these figures coming in in different ways who seem like they could be revolutionary. Obama comes in and everyone's saying he's going to be the liberal FDR and Donald Trump comes in and everyone says, oh, it's, you know, this transformational populism. And then one thing happens and then nothing else happens for the rest of the presidency. And policy gets made increasingly by the bureaucracy and the courts and Congress just sort of abdicates everything, except when there's a pandemic and you actually have to do something, right? So politics, policymaking still happens under emergency conditions. You could, you know, you have budgets get passed when you're running, going to hit the fiscal cliff. Bailouts happen when the economy is tanking and we'll spend $2 trillion uh, when the whole economy is shutting down. But otherwise, the system can't actually be reformed. And all of those emergency things that happen, you'll notice just add more to deficit spending, you know, rightly so in certain cases, we should be doing more deficit spending in a pandemic, but it doesn't reflect any kind of structural reform. So that's politics. I think in other areas, what you have is, it's not that level of dysfunction, but you have a lot of, you know, consolidation and monopoly power. I think that's, a, a again, a feature of sort of the playing not to lose dynamic that you were describing. So, you know, even in Silicon Valley, right, the most dynamic sector of the economy has still ended up dominated by four or five companies after this brief Wild West period of real entrepreneurialism. And entrepreneurs then sort of compete to get bought up by these bigger companies. Or even like in higher education, you know, where everyone said, ah, the internet's going to come along and it's going to, you know, hugely disrupt higher ed and all these schools are going to are going to, uh, you know, are going to have to be totally reinvented. And, you know, maybe the pandemic will accelerate some of that. But, you know, if you go and look at the U.S. News and World Report rankings of colleges, there's no list that's more stable, (laughs) unchanging, you know, 
places move up and down. University of Chicago has climbed a little bit. But you would you would not look at American higher ed and say, oh, this is a sector where, you know, you could start a new college and, you know, become become really successful and attract a lot of students. It's more like, you know, no, you have these old behemoths competing for a shrinking population of students relying on foreign student money to keep them solvent. And, you know, the University of Phoenix isn't going to topple that system. Well, yeah, that point you made about entrepreneurship, I think, yeah, there's this idea we have in our narrative that we have about ourselves and our current age that we're an age of entrepreneurs. You see, look at all these tech startups, but uh, you point out and uh, other economists have shown is that we're actually less entrepreneurial than we were 40 or 50 years ago, like less, fewer, smaller businesses are opening up. Yes. Fewer, fewer, fewer com- old companies are going out of business. Fewer new companies are opening up. It's harder to keep a new company in business than it used to be. And also people are literally just not moving as much as they used to, which again is sort of surprising and counterintuitive. People say, oh, you know, the reason society is so adrift and atomized now is that everybody's moving around more and more and nobody stays in one place. But weirdly, Americans are more likely to stay in one place than they were 20 or 30 years ago. They're less likely to move in search of work they're more likely to end up in the area where they grew up or the area where they moved after college. And, and that's, a big, that's a big shift and a sign of sort of, again, sclerosis, people getting locked in place. And it, and it, you know, it interacts with government policy too, right? So you have a large, large bureaucracies that are based in states that mean if you're, you know, if you're, whether you're getting welfare somewhere or if you have to pay child support or, you know, you have visitation rights. There are all kinds of structural forces that, that tend to keep people within state lines in a way that might not have been the case 50 years ago. But is that necessarily a bad thing? Like people settling down or in like, you know, establishing roots in a community or is that, is it, or if people are people not moving and they're not doing that? I think that the problem is they're not doing either. Right. So you have a lot of, these sort of, you know, decayed, decayed communities that people that, you know, don't provide enough work, but people aren't leaving them to find new work. And that's, I think, a story of, you know, in a lot of sort of Midwestern, former Rust Belt America, you have a lot of towns and situations like that. A lot of the zones where the opioid epidemic is worst are like that. People, instead of moving, are getting hooked on drugs. So yeah, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing to, to stay in or come back to your hometown. And there are, there are ways in which we should probably want more people, you know, sort of a certain kind of talented American would probably be better for the country if they did move back instead of just clustering in a few elite megacities. But for a lot of the people who are staying, they're not staying to put down roots. They're just staying and sort of drifting. Yeah, I can see like if you moved a lot, there'd be an incentive for you to get involved in your community because you're trying to get something. At least I saw that with my parents. You know, they moved to a new place and my you know, mom was involved in the neighborhood, the neighborhood women's group and planning parties and things like that. And that's not really happening anymore in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And it finally took like the moms who did this stuff 30 years ago to get it going again in my mom's neighborhood. So they're planning parties again. Well, not anymore because we got the pandemic going on. But it's, yeah, right. seems, <laughs> it seems like this is like a forgotten skill of how to like, of community building. People just, again, I think it's a sign of decadence. Like, just, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too much work. I don't know how to organize myself or other people. Yeah, and it also reflects changes in family and the economy too, right? So like the other thing about our economy is it's not just that we, 
you know, in order to have these growth rates or running higher deficits, we also have more people working than ever before, which is a good thing insofar as, you know, it means that, you know, women can be professionally fulfilled in a way that they couldn't be in 1945 or 1955. But it also means that families that would like to have one earner and have the other spouse at home can't, you know, feel like they can't afford it. And that in turn means that the communities themselves have fewer people in them day to day. Not again, not right now, <laughs> but when the pandemic ends, you know, if you have an economy built around two earner households, there isn't time and space for community building. There are, you know, the, the neighborhoods of 60 years ago where kids played in the streets were that worked because parents were home. And so you had a sense that your kids were being supervised by somebody, even if they weren't, you weren't supervising themselves. And all of that goes away in a two earner economy. Well, speaking of family life, you also make this point that in a decadent society, fewer kids are born. What's going on there? What's causing the decrease in fertility? Is it economics? Or is it cultural shifts? Is it like a combination of all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, it has to be all of it together. It's a little bit mysterious. This is sort of one of the basic, you know, almost universal facts about rich societies the world over is that they all have too few kids to reproduce and sustain themselves. And the U.S. was an outlier to this trend for a long time. And 20 years ago, there was sort of this assumption that, you know, just like we were more religious than the rest of the developed world, we also had bigger families and more kids. But more recently, and especially since the Great Recession, that's changed and our fertility rates are below replacement too, just like Europe and East Asia. And you have places where they're way below replacement. Like our fertility rate is like 1.7 now, with two being replacement level. Um, places like South Korea are down to one. So they're literally having half as many kids as they would need to sort of maintain their current population. And some of this reflects you know, obvious facts like, you know, declining infant mortality means you, you know, don't have to have seven kids to have four grow up to adulthood. You know, we're not an agrarian economy anymore. So you don't need five strong sons to work in your fields. And women have more opportunities than they did 50 years ago. So they're less likely to become mothers. But it's really unclear why it's settled this low. You know, especially because people still say that they want more kids than we're actually having. The, you know, men and women both say they, you know, the average desired fertility, desired family size is like two and a half kids. And we're ending up with 1.6 or 1.7 kids instead. So it has to have something to do with these economic trends where people feel like they have to work harder to stay ahead and the costs of these basic goods for families have gone up, education, healthcare, housing, and so on. But, you know, it also has something to do with culture generally. It has something to do with the thing we were talking about at the beginning, that, you know, rich societies or comfortable societies are less likely to take risks and, you know, sort of try new things. And in this context, having a kid or having a large family is in certain ways one of the more challenging and riskier things that you can do. And so people do less of it. And then something's happened with the internet too, right? Where so far... Internet dating, internet sex, pornography, all of these things seem to sort of push the sexes away from each other a little bit more. So it's not just the number of kids are going down, the number of people getting married is going down, the number of people in relationships goes down, and the amount of sex goes down. Americans are having less sex than they did when 
I was in college, which, you know, is hard to believe, let me tell you. <laughs> but there, there it is. No, yeah, we had that, uh, that journalist uh, from The Atlantic who did that article about the sex recession. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah that it was, was a terrific piece. Yeah, and it, all those factors. Uh, I mean, it's sort of a, a whole bunch of factors going in on at once to cause less sex in relationship forming going. I'm sure, well, I don't know, the pandemic could go either way. I think the pandemic, I think the pandemic pushes people deeper into decadence, I think, in this, in this case. Unless you get, I think you could see a bounce back where once people sort of post-quarantine, once they're allowed out of the house and the economy starts recovering, that you could have, you know, more dating marriages and babies then. But over the next year or so, you know, people are, nobody's going to be dating, right? Or they're going to be dating virtually. Um, and you've already seen, you know, Pornhub is doing very well, right? Like, you know, this is, this is a, this is a, this is a better moment probably for Pornhub than for baby making. Even if people are stuck in the house with, you know, their spouse or significant other, they're in a context of, you know, economic anxiety. If they already have kids, they're dealing with those kids. You know, I don't know. I mean, we're having a baby in a couple of weeks ourselves. So oh, wow. sort of these thoughts are these thoughts are in my mind. But we yeah, we didn't conceive the child in the lockdown and I doubt that we would have. So uh I mean what's the future of decadence? Are we just kind of gonna just kind of hang out here for a while in this sort of blase, <laughs> boring, stagnant thing? Or I mean, does it or do we have to like, you know, pray for an apocalypse? Like do they all have to become accelerationist and and want the world to end, or can we get our can we work our way out of it? So I don't think you, you don't want to pray for an apocalypse, right? Because there's some people on the internet that do that, though. No, I know. Listen, I, 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 I un- totally understand that impulse. You know, the desire for excitement, the desire for drama, and but the reality is that most apocalypses, probably all apocalypses, are worse than decadence, and that you know, decadence is bad, but as long as you're in it, there's a chance that you can get out of it without having to endure the collapse of civilization. And that should be option A, (laughs) you know, before you go all the way to Tyler Durden and blowing up the credit card companies and, you know, people pounding mash in the ruins of New York City, you might want to try sort of a, you know, you might want to try a renaissance without the dark age, I guess, first. But that's, you know, that's challenging and it's hard to get one. and. I think what you sort of can hope for, again, we're sort of living through a moment like this right now, is that instead of a big apocalypse coming along and leveling society, that a sort of moment of crisis that exposes some of the realities of decadence that are hidden when things are going well, you know, that exposes sort of the problems in your public health bureaucracy or, you know, the problems in your government or, you know, the ways in which your society is sort of overextended and doesn't know how to make things anymore and so on. Like that something like that can be a spur to change and transformation in a way that doesn't require, you know, a hundred million dead people. So that would be the sort of the optimistic take on the era we're living through now is that once we come out of this agony, there will be sort of an opportunity to shift things in our politics, shift things in our economy, to have a little more growth and dynamism to sort of, you know, maybe people go so deep into the virtual cocoon during the lockdown that they come out and they're ready to do more things in the real world. But it's also totally possible, right, that, 
you know, you go through a crisis like this and people come out of it and, and they tell it, they tell each other now everything's going to be different. But in fact, you sort of slip back into the way things were before very quickly, except your system, your government is a little more discredited. Your, you know, your local communities are a little less functional and you're just actually a little deeper in decadence than you were before. And, you know, that in the Roman empire, right? Like, Rome had a series of, of epidemics, pandemics over its hundreds of years of decline that played a big role in the decline. And after each one, there was presumably opportunities for reinvigoration that, you know, you got a Diocletian and a Constantine, sometimes they took them. But for the most part, they just sort of pushed the empire further along its decadent trajectory. I mean, it sounds like if any change is going to happen, like a renaissance, it'll have to be bottom up. Like you can't look to the institutions that are decrepit to save yourself, save you from decadence. Well, I think for most people listening to this podcast, that's absolutely right. Yeah. The, the war against decadence starts in your home or business or community, right? You're, you know, you, you sort of strike a blow against decadence when you start a company or start a family or, you know, during the pandemic, you know, start a, you know, plant a garden in your backyard or figure out how to, you know, repair things yourselves. Like, you know, these, that, that sort of attitude, I think, is the appropriate one for the average person, maybe especially the average man to take. That being said, you know, if you're in politics, right? I mean, I, you know, I write a column about politics as my day job. So I'm spend a certain amount of time thinking about, you know, well, what should senators be thinking about? What should people who work for a president be thinking about? You know, there, there are ways in which, you know, individual actors can try and redirect a system, right? You know, you, you do have these moments in history where, you know, really talented political figures come along and effectively rebuild or refound a system. I don't think you can give up on the idea that some kind of political refounding is possible and that that could then have, you know, some kind of virtuous interaction with the efforts that people are making from the bottom up. You know, so if you get the right statesman, you could get policies that make the life of the entrepreneur or the father easier than it is under our current situation. I like that idea of individuals pushing back against decadence. Reminded me of that Flannery O'Connor quote, push back against the age as hard as it pushes against you. But in this case, you have to push harder, right? Because the thing about decadence is it's this, it's this sort of soft pillow, right? Like that's, I mean, that's, and that's sort of the challenge in a way is that, is that it's not, you know, it's, it's not like, I think about this in, in the context of religion, right? Because I'm, I'm a practicing Catholic of some kind. And, you know, you have a lot of my sort of fellow believers who will say, well, you know, as America becomes Christian, less Christian, you know, we're going to get to a point where society is so anti-Christian that you'll have, a, you know, a landscape of persecution or something. And I, I don't think that's actually the challenge. I think the challenge for religious people, which I think applies beyond religion, is that society is not going to persecute you. They're just going to sort of, you know, ignore you and encourage you to, you know, not not get up and go to church on Sunday morning because it's much easier to sit around and see what's on Netflix. And that applies, I think that applies across the board. I think, you know, there's, there's nobody, you know, maybe someone in your, you know, zoning committee or someone in city hall is going to keep you from building an addition to your house. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's like bureaucratic red tape here and there, but nobody's preventing you from starting a family. Nobody is forcing you 
um, not to get married. It's just, there's a lot of other, other entertaining stuff you could be doing. And it's easy to just, you know, marijuana is legal now, right? You can, you know, you can just sort of drift. It's soft. So you have to push harder. Push harder. I like that. Well, Ross, this has been a great conversation. There's some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work. Yes. I mean, you know, obviously copies are available at amazon.com. And, but I should also say, since we're in this, this pandemic moment, that if you have a local bookstore that is, you know, selling books, delivering books, having you pick up books to try and, you know, keep making some money in this context, I would obviously urge you to buy the book there and support your local businesses. And then, you know, I write a column twice a week for the New York Times. So you can find me there and on Twitter at DouthitNYT. All right, Ross Douthit, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. My guest today was Ross Douthit. He is the author of the book, The Decadent Society. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash decadence, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. Also, if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout to get a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AWIM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>